Welcome back, friends. You are in the Grotto Pod. I am in the Grotto Pod, and I guess I'm the one who you should be welcoming back. Yes, you're recently back last night. Bridget is in the Grotto Pod. Here I am. The Golden State Warriors are not in the Grotto Pod, except in spirit. But they're awesome. Congratulations. Congratulations to all of the Bay Area. We're back at it after uh, absence by me. And this week on the Grotto Pod, coming to you in stereo, I think, maybe. What does that mean, coming in stereo? I have no idea. Our guest is Michael Frank, author of the memoir, The Mighty Franks. Good title. Now. Pre-made title. uh, Pre-made title, Michael Frank, not a Grotto member. Nope. uh, Right. uh, Longtime books editor of the LA Times, I believe. Mm -hmm. Uh, Short stories, essays all over the place. New York Times Magazine, Atlantic, Slate, Yale Review, Tablet, Jewish publication. You may not have known that. And yet I am not surprised because I have read the memoir. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> about a Jewish family, of which he is part. Now, this is going to be this is an interesting uh, get for us yes. here because this memoir, uh, which I what was the publication date? Is it has it already come out or is we, are we in pre order phase? We might have to ask Michael that. No, no, it's out sometime this week. It's out, but let me tell you, when I was preparing for this podcast and I googled it, yeah. It's getting reviewed in all the right places. And really good reviews. And there's lots of great reviews and lots of great momentum behind it. It's a the thing I was the most impressed by in this story. There's great writing, the story itself. Actually, we're going to have to have Michael explain the setup because it's so complicated. Mm-hmm. Was that he handled so many characters and so many complicated? He characters. did handle characters, and and, be, and it's it's a family memoir. It's a memoir right. of a, of a uniquely structured family. Yes, you could say that, and, and a uniquely mannered family. Yes, and uh, the result being a boy who kind of grows up out of time and out of place. Would that we were be saying fair to he say? grew up in the forties and the seventies, right? And 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 I think he grew up in in Paris and Laurel Canyon. Yes, I would say that's true. Uh, and there's there's so much stuff going on. And old Hollywood in 70s right. Hollywood. Right, I was going to say old Hollywood. Yeah. I was halfway through the book before I realized that a couple of the characters, the main characters that he's talking about, mm-hmm. were actually, uh, I think it's fair to say, among the most esteemed Hollywood screenwriters Definitely. in the history of the game there. Definitely. And I mean, they were I they were Hollywood royalty. Basically, Hollywood royalty, which... I, it's, and I don't know if he's going to want to go there when we talk to him, but he doesn't present them as Hollywood royalty until right toward the end. There's a couple names that show up, and you're like, oh. I wasn't surprised because I had already researched them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they wrote uh, Norma Ray, They I wrote know, HUD. It really, I mean. Right. Classics. Classic. Um, great American films. Although I love that they called them movies and not films. I, I love like that. that. And I it know. surprised me because they seem like the type that would call them films. But they were during the time of the movies, darling. <laughs> I don't know. I kept having Catherine Hepburn or someone's voice in my head while I was reading The Ant, who is this great character. Who Hank. is this really... Uh, what it, I, in my notes I have, and I couldn't figure out. It was a, from a review that I read, and let me just move a bunch of stuff around without you knowing. To just that's open a notebook requires in the grotto pod. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, uh, that's the tinkling of the ice in my glass, which, my iced coffee. If this was a different type, <laughs> if it was a different type of memoir, the tinkling of ice in the glass would be. Oh, true. This isn't that type no. of memoir, but his aunt was uh, Judith Thurman, who I kept trying to figure out who it was, but in a oh yes review. Mm-hmm. Uh, called his aunt one of the great difficult women in contemporary literature, which I think is accurate. And one of the things I'd like to get into more here when he gets here is that this very difficult woman, I think we're sort of in danger of seeing her only as difficult. I don't know. There was a side of her that I really loved. Well, she was unsinkable. 
Yes. She was She's like Auntie Mame. Yeah, yeah. She definitely was. And she definitely blew into the room. I'm sure that yeah. there was no. And she is this sort of gust of high art in the dry valley of Laurel Canyon. <laughs> which, is an, which is its own kind of irony because when the history yeah. of American music is written, a lot of the high art. Exactly. If you consider pop music high art came from Laurel Canyon at this time. I know that's fascinating but because it is conspicuously you would absent, completely entirely not there. Right. Like if you're hoping to hear about how Jackson Brown and somebody from the Eagles right were now. like smoking out on the porch, no. Nope. No, no. Mama Cass is not coming to that door. No, but you will find out about or I don't know. Ham sandwich. Edwardian furniture. I'm not sure I have but I don't know much modern, about yes, modern, and, and yes. Modern. And trips to Europe. Well, this is this going to be there's going to be a lot to chew on in this episode of the Grotto Pod, so I think we should just get to it. I have just received a text from Michael Frank. Yes. He's running a little bit late. Oh, I see. But we're fine. Okay. We got plenty of time. Yeah. Uh, But we're going to take a little break then while we wait for Michael Frank. So we want to make sure the Grotto Pod is in tip top shape. I mean, this is a guy who grew up in a, uh, going to a house referred to as the Maison. So I don't know. Or the Chateau. No, it was the Maison. Oh, it was the Maison. Yeah. Uh, So I want to make sure the Grotto Pod is really looking good. Oh, my God. It It looks so scabby. It's a mess right now. So let's clean it up. So uh, let's do that. And then we'll come back with uh, Michael Frank, author of The Mighty Franks. Awesome. Welcome, Michael Frank, to the Grotto Pod. Thank you for having me. I was waiting because, Larry, we've been getting in trouble for talking over each other. I was just mentioning to Michael that Larry and I have become like siblings, and in my family, you don't wait for someone to stop speaking. Nor in anyone else's, clearly. Right. Correct. I would imagine in your family, there was some talking over each other. And as long as we're on the topic of families, Mm. uh, we're here to talk about Michael's memoir, The Mighty Franks. Awesome title. Which is really a story, I was going to say it's a story of a very unique family, but I also think it's primarily the story of your development. Um, and, and actually, the, the one thing, we were talking a little bit beforehand about things we wanted to discuss with you and really questions we had that had been raised by, by the book. And the first one I came up with was just sort of take us through a little process stuff. And when you wrote this book... Was it already a finished product in your head, or did you learn a lot from about yourself from writing it? Was it a confirmation or a challenge? I think it was probably a mixture of both. I found my way into the book uh, the second time because, uh, as I've said before elsewhere, but I'm happy to say again, and I've written in the book, I first tried to write it as a novel some yeah. time ago. And for various reasons, that wasn't successful. I think I hadn't matured enough to have enough distance from the experience. I think that I needed uh, more courage than I had maybe 20 years ago when I wrote it as a novel. Mm -hmm. And then there was simply the reaction in the world, which is that people found the central character who was based on, at that time, my aunt, Mm -hmm. to be uh, not credible as a a character, (laughs) which, of course, was was a sort of rueful – I responded to it with a sort of rueful attitude, which is okay. Oh, well, yeah. yeah. You want to exactly. <laughs> and so that, I began after that to think, well, th- this is the wrong genre for this particular story. And then I took a break to write other things. And then my uncle died. And it was a combination of his death and finding myself farther along in my own life by then, married with a child living on another coast, having lived a great deal in Italy true perspective distancing experiences, all of them geographic, psychological, existential, if you will. And I returned to the subject 
beginning with my uncle's closet, which is a section of the book, which was for a time the working title of the book. And that was how I found my way back into the material. Since you brought up your uncle's closet, I actually had a question. One of the first things I wrote in my notes that I won't be able to look at because this place is too small to actually handle notes. I heard you trying to look. I know. (laughs) That rustling paper you heard. Um, I was really struck by the idea of the uncle's closet as as a tool. As a tool for a writer. I have to interrupt. I think we need to step back for a second. Oh, okay. And Michael needs to set up the story because okay. it's complicated. If we try to summarize it, it will of be course. way fact, too complicated. Good call, BQ. Yeah. And, uh, BQ, yeah. I almost had the same uh, <laughs> sentence ready for you. So let me just give you a few words uh, to orient you as a reader or listener. Mm-hmm. You need this, friends. Yes. Um, The Mighty Franks is a memoir, and it is about my early life forward growing up in what I like to call an unusually intertwined family where my parents and my aunt and uncle were siblings. That is to say, my father and his sister were married to my mother and her brother. Brother and sister married sister and brother. The older couple, my aunt and uncle, were very accomplished Hollywood screenwriters who lived two blocks away from us in Laurel Canyon. At the same time, my two grandmothers, the mothers of the widowed mothers of these siblings, lived 10 minutes away in an apartment together, quite unhappily, at the foot of Laurel Canyon in West Hollywood. My aunt and uncle uh, were glamorous, worldly, cultivated, magical, verbal, powerful, and eventually quite unhinged human beings who, being childless, borrowed me, in quotation marks, for long stretches of my childhood, opening my eyes to worlds that I might not have been open to before, teaching me what to read, what kinds of pictures to look at, buildings to like, music to like, movies, never films, that was considered a pretentious word, to be drawn to. And that all went fine until I began to have my own ideas about what I was seeing, experiencing, and noticing, not simply in those cultural artifact ways, but in in the story of our family, how we came to be who we were, how people treated each other, how people behaved. When I began to see and uh, speak about what I saw, uh, many chain reactions were set in motion that, in a way, really unraveled our whole family as it had been up till that time fun stuff and (laughs) obviously the subject of some sort of book. There's a lot to unpack here. A lot to unpack, but also a lot to present to readers. I mean, you handle so many characters mm-hmm. with clarity. I was very impressed by that. Thank you. Um, especially because some of them share the same name. Uh, it's exactly. it's a kind of a nightmare. <laughs> even, imagine living it. It's one thing to read it or write it. And especially even in retelling the relationships, how it's set up, which I'm sure you've done hundreds if not thousands yeah. of times in your life, you still sort of stumble over how it actually worked. In fact, because I'm still in awe at, at, of it myself, I often say to my mother, because, who, the most rational of all of these people, what were you thinking? You know, <laughs> And her answer was, I wasn't thinking that clearly, or I wasn't thinking it through to the degree I might have, or the situation was very different in 1946 and 1956. Right. Also, she was very young when she sort of entered into this path in a way, this family pact. Exactly. She was 13 when she met my aunt. And in literary terms, you would call that a kind of foreshadowing. That She had right. a, a sort of precursor experience to my aunt who took her on as, as the, the younger sister. The, mm-hmm. Exactly. And taught her all her, uh, her 
own version of the kinds of things that Which she had a habit of doing. That was one of her specialties, as it had been my grandmother's. So these sort of things are transmitted down through the generations. And my mother was besotted with her for a long time. She had never seen a woman this beautiful, this this knowing, this stylish. She was deeply influenced with uh, by her for a time. And, and that changed. And unique for the time, and I don't know because I wasn't there, but also very successful professionally mm-hmm. as a woman. All the women worked, which is interesting in this story. My paternal grandmother, uh, during the Depression, went to try to find any kind of work she could to make up for um, the loss of money that had been speculated in the stock market, like as in many American families of a certain class at that time. She eventually happened on – she had been educated. She went to read in Berkeley and she happened on to a radio show and the radio show led to a lecture series, one thing to another. And she had an interview with Louis B. Mayer in 1939 and at MGM and uh, she picked up the entire family and took a gamble, moved to Los Angeles, got the job as one of his story editors and, and was there for 15 years. Amazing. It was a real rags to riches story. They got – they went from living in this – Threadbare bungalow in Portland to a little tiny apartment on West Third or West Fourth Street in Los Angeles to a mansion in Brentwood. You know, it was like something out of a dream. It's something out of actually an 18th century novel. <laughs> there is a lot of uh, a lot of uh, Picaro uh, development in my grandmother's life. Absolutely, and. My other grandmother was uh, an immigrant who uh, had been born in Sfat, Safed, Pal- what was then Palestine, and she made her way through the world starting at age 16 as a teacher of Hebrew and continued to teach until virtually until she died. Her entire life, she earned her way. My aunt was a screenwriter. My mother worked in television. She helped my father in, her, in his business. Then she raised us. Women were always out of the house, thank mm-hmm. goodness. You know. <laughs> um, so one thing that struck me immediately – was the setting and the way that your family interacted with Laurel Canyon in the 70s. And I asked this, I have a friend who's around your age, a little younger, who also grew up in Laurel Canyon in the 70s. And his story was, well, you know, Mama Cass was my babysitter. Mm -hmm. And that is not present in your Laurel Canyon at all. Was it there? Just not? Well, it was there. And it is is present in a way in the story. My mother listened to that music. And Mm -hmm. that was part of her uh, liberation. She began to evolve. Exactly. I I mean, I was waiting for the other shoe to drop a little bit in your mother's transformation that, Mm -hmm. oh, she's going to. She's going to ditch the family right. and end up marrying a woman. And I no, don't know. right, exactly. Yeah. No, this is not a ditching family sort of family, you know. And that's really, I think, one of the complicated themes that runs through the book, which is in a normal family, you might leave. But if you're leaving here, you've got your husband to bring you back, your brother to bring you back, your sister-in-law. Have, your sister mothers are living together. How are you going to leave? And what's going to happen to this very strange relationship that's been is a whole business deal, really, you know, both financial and psychological, the two grandmothers living together. I mean, there's there's no leaving. It's a, it's a I call it the shtetl in Laurel Canyon, the modernized, you know. But uh, we did go to school with the children of some of those people. Mm-hmm. The music was in the air. Stylistically, everything in our house changed and in my mother's uh, wardrobe and her look changed, whereas my aunt remained totally fixed in her Hollywood of the 40s and 50s appearance. Well, was there ever a sense, and maybe less among you because you had really been trained to think of that as the norm, mm-hmm. that your aunt and uncle were suddenly out of step? 
Not from their point of view. <laughs> the rest of the world was out of step with them. That, but that was unimportant. Yeah. Exactly. And the movies they made were in step culturally. Yeah. So just because. So much so. Entirely. But that was a product of a different kind of savvy and of their long term collaboration with the director, Marty Ritt. You could go from 18th century furniture and decoration up on the hill to the Wild West where it was tumbleweeds and stagecoaches, if you will. You uh, know? And I would posit that their written dialogue sounds more real than their actual spoken dialogue. Real in a certain category. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Very spare, very trenchant often. Um, they were good writers. They were excellent writers. Yeah. They were very gifted human beings, very gifted on many fronts. And yet I was very fascinated by Hank, which is your aunt's. One of her uh, nicknames, Her nicknames, yes. and I want you to tell that story a little bit, too, because there's a fascinating junior-senior mm-hmm. piece to that. Um, that here they are, people who are sort of earthy enough to call movies movies, which I love. Right. And to write, you know, very trenchant movies of their time, and yet to despise the modern and very to strict. esteem 18th century Art and architecture and um, or even Palladio before the 18th century. I mean, really, really backward looking in a certain way. Classical. You know, yes, backward looking. Traditional and neoclassical and neoclassical. Yeah. Um, it's not something. I mean, well, actually, there is that part of the movies, I guess. And there is that part of California. What if I think about... um, I don't know what's that. What's that? Santa Cena? No, what's the name of the big Montes- castle? Yeah. Oh no! Oh, uh, oh so Hearst, Hearst, Castle. Hearst Castle. There's Norton Simon. There's yeah, J. Paul true, Getty. There true. was you know yeah. old Hollywood in a sense. Yes, was I Fred see. Gary, Edward G. Robinson mm-hmm. with his collection of impressionist yeah. masters. Mm-hmm. Uh, Billy Wilder was a great art collector. You know, there there were definitely a sense of that was also a way of uh, seeming. I think that you'd arrived was that you you were right. fitting into a, a well, more European right, that's tradition. True. And wasn't there also a sense in early Hollywood of proving that you were high culture because Hollywood wasn't considered a really respectable way to make a living. I should say not. I mean, remember, no dogs or actors allowed. It often used right. to say in L.A. apartment buildings, they began as Nickelodeon machines in, in, in five and dime stores. You know, this art form began yeah. very simply. And it's not, it's not just by aggressiveness that our people, the Jews, were the first to take over Hollywood because no one else wanted it. Right. And also, I wonder if there's a way of um, insisting, I mean, you know, some of the greatest 20th century Renaissance and medieval art historians were Jewish. Like, there's a way of insisting on that culture within your own culture as being, I don't know, something esteemable. Or a way to belong, a way to partake of a tradition. You have right. to remember my aunt and uncle went to – both attended UCLA eventually in the 40s. Mm-hmm. And think about what was being taught. The canon was Completely. still being taught. They they knew Shakespeare. They knew Milton. They knew Longfellow. They knew John Donne by heart. You know, right. it was an old school way of thinking about culture. Was there the kind of Jewish, I mean, you know, restrictions at UCLA or places like that on the West Coast like there were on the East Coast? Mm, I don't think so. I think they let us in. <laughs> <laughs> and that was not a factor. I mean, part of coming that, coming to California in 1939 was a total reinvention for my grandmother, as I, I mentioned earlier. And I think they, they really felt they were beginning from with a clean slate. They found the Northwest to be very constricting mm-hmm. mentally uh, and perhaps on these other fronts mm-hmm. as well. But 
in L.A., you were free to be whoever you decided you were going to be with a stroke of luck and, and of some and talent. And they made the most of that by absolute extremes. Yes, they were, by working very hard. And they, had a, they would always say that they were extremely lucky in their careers. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the career, their careers are very much, a, a, by intention, uh, a background to this story. I, I like to think that it could have happened in any family mm-hmm. against any business, if you will. It's yeah. interesting you bring that up because I am an obsessive Googler. So halfway through, I Googled your aunt and uncle, and I was like, holy cow, they're not successful screenwriters. They're Hollywood royalty. Mm-hmm. And I do feel like you downplayed that. It wasn't till the end that you brought in a few names. You mentioned Martin Ritt. Like, yeah, well, I already knew that. If I hadn't Googled them, though, I probably would have been surprised. Was mm-hmm. that an intentional move? It was because I wanted the the attention of the reader to be on the story, mm-hmm. not on the obvious, obvious signals of connection to wider cultural right. uh, material. And also, that's their story. You mm-hmm. know? And my story is my story of them personally, not their story of their careers. And know? I guess it would have been a little more salacious if it had been like, hey, these are famous Hollywood screenwriters. And your aunt's still alive? She is. Wow. That is one powerful woman. Yes. <laughs> there are a lot of powerful people in that family. I am a little bit fascinated, too, about it being a memoir. I think that is somewhat a sign of our times that people want memoir more than novels if it's about the truth. Like 20 or 30 years ago, people would have only thought of it as a novel. Probably. You know, it's so interesting because the book has very fortunately sold abroad in several places. Mm-hmm. In Denmark and in Spain, for example, it's being sold mm-hmm. and, and published as a novel. Yeah, I can hmm. see that. Which is really curious to me. And it would have also would also be the case apparently in France because especially in France, they, have, they are dubious of people who can tell the past using the techniques of storytelling of fiction, yeah. scenes and dialogue as I do. Apparently, similarly, also in Denmark and in and Spain, in Italy, it will be it will be sold as nonfiction. Mm-hmm. So it's very, you know, I think so, also in part, uh, some of these boundaries are not as fixed as they have been. We're in a moment in I the agree. culture. You have Michael Chabon's book. You have this fantastic book that's been a great inspiration to me for what I'm working on next, called War and Turpentine, in which uh, the author takes. His grandfather's diaries, which were written during World War One, and presents them as fact. It does the research into all of the battlefields and all of the places that his grandfather lived, worked, and loved, and then breaks into the voice of the diary, which you know is the voice of the novelist part of the writer. Mm. And there are there's Rachel Cusk writing her novels, which are really so seems so very closely to follow her own life. She's on the third one in this current series. So the those hard boundaries, I think, are softening in ways that can be quite interesting. It, they do raise all kinds of questions about what is truth and what is imagined. Mm-hmm. But within an actual framework of fact, you have, I think, a little bit more room these days than maybe you did 20 years ago. I mean, there's even, there's even controversy. I find it completely un, uninteresting that a memoirist should not use dialogue. Um, I think that's insane myself personally, and I love if if we didn't hear Hank speak, we would not be charmed by her in the I way I couldn't that we imagine are. writing such a right. book. You know, and I take a little bit of comfort from Henry James, who uh, in writing notes of a son and brother had this to say. He said, uh, which was his one, the second installment, the first or second installment in his three part 
projected autobiography of which he finished only two. He said the the memoirist must live back imaginatively. Mm -hmm. And so while in his case he was saying, I think, that you cannot have every morsel accurate from your infancy and your early childhood, you do know the people, you do know the situations enough to be able to summon it in a narrative form somewhat imaginatively. Now, I personally did very little of that for, for other reasons. I had my own diaries. Mm-hmm. I had these people live so long and repeat themselves so many times that I felt safe in mm-hmm. harvesting some of their speech patterns of, say, you know, 30 years ago to serve as speech patterns of 40 years <laughs> ago. But it opens a conversation, of course, around how do you reconstruct the past, you know? Yeah, and I guess what your responsibility is to be 100% accurate. I think if you're truthful, um, truth is almost larger than accuracy to the nth degree. I agree. But uh, I've, I feel confident and behind m- much of what I've written, obviously, mm-hmm. most of what I've written. But there's, you know, the, there are writerly crafts that are brought forward in the making of a memoir and should be in a good one, I think. Editorial, what you're choosing, what you're rejecting, how you're shaping, where you're putting it what you're leaving out. Mm-hmm. For sure. Now, Bridget and I, we were talking earlier and we had a disagreement. And you may be surprised to hear. I know. Don't <laughs> be surprised. Um, and you may not like the, the side I come down on. Please. But the reasons are partly personal and, and partly, I don't know what else, but I, I kind of saw Entirely this. Entirely personal. Just, I'll explain to you the partly personal part. I, I saw this partly, and why I'm pointing my notes, I don't know, but as a memoir of abuse. And one of the reasons is because I felt like, and aside from whatever uh, issues were raised by your aunt kind of trying to steal you from your mom, <clears throat> the idea of putting a, a young boy in the position, A, to have to make decisions he shouldn't have to make, B, to have to spend his life decoding, and C, to get his butt kicked every day at school. That, to me, seems like you were abused. Bridget, you have a different point of view I, well, I, I guess I come down on the side that Lindsay mentioned last night at um, the book event at Books, Inc., Lindsay Crittenden, who said there are memoirs of child abuse, physical, sexual, drug abuse. This is a memoir of narrative abuse. She was quoting the review in the TLS, which I thought was the first time anyone's used that term. I like that. Maybe term. we're inventing and, it or it's yeah. been invented for and, us. Uh, I think I could say in some ways I grew up with a little bit of narrative abuse mm-hmm. myself. But it made me who I am. The things that I esteem, the things you esteem, art, literature, came from that person. That is true. Right. So unpacking this idea is is not simple. First of all, there's that word in our culture is so loaded and overused and misused. And I didn't mean for it to be loaded like, oh. But I think it's actually a very good question to Mm -hmm. be asking. It's rather like the word dysfunctional Mm -hmm. in a sense, a word I've forbidden anyone at FSG from using in connection with this book because it means nothing anymore, right? Abuse does mean something. Patrick Melrose, another example of a, a novel that follows uh, is multi-part and follows life closely, was an abused child, and he just turned that into a, a supreme work of fiction. I think um, I would never say of myself that I was abused. First of all, the schoolyard bullying was, I think, a consequence of my being so different as a child. But I don't think you could 
you know, the, we can connect those dots now retrospectively to what was going on at home, but I don't think we can lay the blame at the door of my aunt and uncle, for example. But we have no, I, no way of knowing <clears throat> what you would have been like without that constant input. Exactly. I, I might not be sitting here. I probably right. wouldn't be sitting right. here as a writer. Forget what have, I've written about. You've taken that. over your father's business. I, indeed. And certainly there was pressure at times for that. Forget that one. But um, <laughs> That's another story, as it, they say. It is another story. Uh, it was unchecked. It was unhealthy. It was self-absorbed to a um, fascin- now fascinating but then mm-hmm. punishing degree. Mm-hmm. It was another word I hate, enabled, uh, but allowed, let's say, by the whole strained configuration of the family, by the nature of the players, especially my uncle in it. And, you know, there's this thing to say, and I try to get at it in the book, and, of course, it looks very different to us post-November, but Mm -hmm. a tyrant is not an easy figure to accommodate. Mm -hmm. You wake up. It's not as though you wake up. I should say, and suddenly there's this person bang in your lives. This person evolves in the case of my aunt over time. She was a wonderful person with many wonderful qualities. They didn't always express themselves at their most intelligent, let's say. And bit by bit, the balance changed. And so what was eccentric one day really became problematic a few days later, and so on and so forth, until you ended up with someone who had sucked up so much of the family energy and resources and time. My father used to say, are we yet again going to discuss this woman, these people? We spent years trying to figure out how on earth did this happen? It seemed like people felt helpless. Yes. In her presence. But I'm just thinking... People who staged tantrums and who excommunicate friends and who sweep away history in their own form of narrative refashioning, hence narrative abuse, are very difficult to deal with. You either leave or you try to somehow accommodate Mm -hmm. unsuccessfully because there's no way to accommodate such a person. But it seems like... You're talking about how an adult would deal with someone like this. But the sorts of manipulations, the emotional manipulation she played on you as a kid, you're the, you're the greatest person who's ever walked the earth. You've disappointed me. You're the you're love of my life. How could you do this to me? You're a terrible person. To be a kid and absorb that and then go to school and get your butt kicked? I, I mean, I can't imagine. I'm sure with the, you know, time has given you the, the luxury of looking back and going, wow, I got so many great things from this. I'm a writer. I'm sitting here as a writer today. I'm not running. I forget what your father's business was, but I'm not doing that. But boy, that's a tough road. It was. It was extremely tough. Uh, it was extremely tough. Very. I was a very unhappy person for a very long time, and it left a very deep mark on me. It also apart from the obvious trappings of culture and cultivation, it taught me how to think about human nature. And I think that's a very important lesson for a writer, as we know, to look around what's happening, not always at it, to see it from other angles, to imagine it in other contexts, to reach out to other people who are having similar experiences to get their intake, to spy, as I, as I describe in the book, to observe, to eavesdrop. I was a collector of in my own way, but of information. Mm -hmm. Long before I knew what I was going to do with it, I simply needed to know 
I was trying to figure out how did we come to this moment? How did this person evolve to this person? What the hell? Why was it me? Why was I chosen? I still don't know. Especially since I saw her oldest. Artistic. Artistic. She moved on. You know, I was replaced (laughs) just like all of her friends. And so that sense of, and also let's, you know, I openly admit there was a sense of great joy at being singled out and being so special. We all want that to some degree, I think. Especially as a little kid. Especially when you've got competition with your brothers Mm -hmm. and competition in the world and you're not that well placed in the world as a kid. Now, I feel as, as time moves on, though, you start to feel that it is in your best interest to push back a little bit. Each time you do, it's a disaster. But when you finally break free, and I guess that's arguable, whether you finally broke free, mm. do you feel like you're the only one in your family that did that? Notwithstanding, your brothers didn't have the same sort of investment? Everyone is free now, for the most part. I think I led the, the charge. I led the charge. And that created repercussions that affected everyone's, everyone else's lives. My father, I, I'm officially not answering questions beyond the scope of the book, but, you know, I, it, as where the book ends is pretty much where he is today, which is he remains burdened by the experience, let's just say. How could you not be, especially, yeah. it's your family, it's your family. And, and it's your family and it's your sister. Don't right. forget. What? It's your originating and your right. created family. And that's the piece that I admired in your book and that I, bringing my own experience of a tyrant, is that you love them. You know, there is still family love. He, I'm sure he loves his sister. No, I'm not putting. <laughs> but there, there is so much. There's so many connections that it's easy to say, oh, I'm just going to walk away from this. It's not that easy. It's simply not. Yeah. I personally thought there were a lot of unsung characters in your book, and your father was one of them. I loved mm, your father. Me too. And I well, know he raged, but I loved him. <laughs> he, was a, he was certainly always a very clear uh, presence with a strong point of view and very supportive of the, the time of the troubles, let's call them, you know, and conflict. Never for a moment did he take their side, if that mattered, but he was on the side of reason. And so... I think that matters. Do you think it, it didn't matter? Or because it was just an emotional... I, I, I think no, it, it does matter, of course, hugely to me personally, but yeah. I think that oh. it's not as though he did it... Uh, he did it because it was correct. He right. didn't do it just to be nice to his son, right. which I don't think I would have respected. He did it because he took you know, my point of view because it was the right point of view from his point of view. You know? so and he, again, he's a very truthful person, and he has no truck with the, the degree of fantasy. Really, I think you know, it's so hard in a way, in a few words, to capture what these natures were like. But one of the ways to say it is that they really – didn't have a clear boundary demarking uh, the transition between the work day, the fantasy day, mm. and oh. the real day. And that actually, life. if we could just back up a little bit, I think is illustrated in your aunt's name, your grandmother's name. If you could just go into that, because I think it oh, gives yeah. us a little... Oh, it's a, a lovely window yes. into yes. What, what was going on. So Fantasy reality thing. Yes, my grandmother... I was born in 1898 in um, Helena, Montana. Oh, that was the Montana that was the connection. Montana. Yes. There was some uh, but they bounced around in, 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 that, in that part of the world. Her name at birth was Edith Frances Bergman. She did not like Edith, so she went by Frances Bergman. 
She married, for reasons still mysterious to all of us a century later, uh, Sam Goldstein, my grandfather, and she became Frances Goldstein. She hated the uh, Goldsteins, her, the family she married into, with a passion. And so when she w- d- began to have a radio show in Portland, Oregon during the Depression, it was called Frances Frank, Frankly Speaking. And that was her stage or radio name. And then she shed Goldstein and went by Francis Frank. Then in 1939, when, as I told you, she moved to Los Angeles and took a job as Louis B. Mayer's story editor, she decided to change her first name as well. And so she went from being, at that point, Francis Frank to Harriet Frank Sr. So she, in essence, in effect, took her daughter's name for herself, transformed her daughter to junior status, and she became senior. Harriet, she always said, was a writer's name, and that's why she gave the name Harriet to her daughter. Now, she too was a sort of writer and went on to write short fiction herself after she retired from MGM. And she died, Harriet Frank Sr., known in the family as everyone had a nickname, too, just to confuse things further, <laughs> known as Huffy in the family. And uh, may I just say that you were masterful in handling the many <laughs> names and characters. I was awed. That's not one you've heard before. I'm going to guess, you know, a mother taking a daughter. I've never name. heard a mother and daughter that are a junior and senior before. Or that. I don't know if there is another one. And it, it, Quite honestly. You're actually in the matrilineal line, then, because you t- you are... It's the grandmother's name. Right, but it's also my father's name, don't forget. So. Oh, well, that's true. Right. But then he's the matrilineal. I mean, in a way. <laughs> I don't really know how to, how to un- unpack that. But <laughs> It's such a strange setup, but really, if you were dating someone uh-huh. and you had a sibling and they had a sibling... Wouldn't you want to fix them up? Like, it'd be great. We could hang out our whole lives. No, that is the worst thing I could ever imagine. <laughs> but it doesn't seem that odd to me that you would want oh to do that. God. It seems to me like you might check me into a hospital before I would do that, but that's because of my experience. However, you know, people will come up to me and have been coming up sure. to me. We had that in my family, but everybody got along so famously. Or we had that in my family, but we lived across the globe. Right, your so. family's on top of each other. Literally. Virtually. I actually was really sad about the grandmothers living together. I was sad for Sylvia. I was too. I liked Sylvia so much. Another unsung hero. People respond very favorably to her. Mm-hmm. I think she comes through in the purity mm-hmm. and clarity of her own way of doing things. Mm-hmm. She was someone who had to learn all her life, I think, how to maneuver in complex situations. And she found herself at the end of her life in probably one of the most complex of all. Incredible. Most certainly. Okay, now can we go back to the closet? Sure. <laughs> sure. Okay, yes, oh, the closet. <laughs> so I was struck by that as a, as a writing device. And I'm really curious about when it occurred to you to use that as a device. First, explain how it was used. So um, there's a lot of explaining, obviously, oh, yeah. because it's a, it, this is a complicated world. But um, my aunt, in addition to being a very gifted writer, was also a very gifted uh, interior designer or uh, uh, amateur architect and her p- great passion in life was to play house ma- meaning to buy objects paintings furniture to arrange them and rearrange them I describe it as a kind of performance art because the, the rooms were always changing and being reimagined the colors on the walls would change according to her moods darker with darker brighter with brighter there was one period where she painted everything gold there was one period where everything went black it was 
quite interesting. My uncle had only one space in the entire house that belonged to him other than the surface of his desk, which eventually she also colonized, and that was his closet, which he had a hand in um, requesting, let's say, when they went to build the house they built in 1969. It was a room of about 10 by 12 or 12 by 14 feet, windowless, and entirely his, fitted out on three sides with shelves, drawers, shoe rack, uh, places for filing cabinets. And there he kept all of their bound manuscripts starting in the days when he was by himself a playwright before he became a screenwriter and continuing forward in time. He kept his smoking paraphernalia, his wardrobe, which was how he expressed himself creatively outside of writing. He kept family photographs and memorabilia reviews and, and, and awards related to their career, which notably were not on display in the wider house. He kept a naked photograph of himself as an infant across from a portrait painted of my aunt by the father of one of her close friends who also happened to be the lover of her father's lover. Another story. Wow. This closet fascinated me as a child because it expressed my uncle, because there he kept treasures for me, real treasures, right. shirt cardboards for me to draw on, books that he thought I would like, his old shirt that he thought I might wear one day. And we used to go in there and he would show me his things and it was like a retreat within this greater house, closeted in a very different sense of the world, word. There, my uncle was able to have a little bit of space that was entirely his own. When he died, uh, something happened to that closet that I won't say because I'll leave that right. to the readers that triggered in me an instant wish to recapture it. And it wasn't simply developed that wish that day. It had gone way back in my life. And it was, a, in a sense, a little bit of my Madeline. I was going to reconstitute that moment those moments in the closet. And out of it, I hoped I would be able to bring forward his life separate from my aunt. And that's actually where I began writing the memoir, which for a time had the working title, My Uncle's Closet. It was my way in. And then I realized I had other rooms, other places, other houses that were calling calling for attention. Do you- this is a little bit off topic, but it just occurred to me. Do you ever feel, because your aunt and uncle were public figures of a sort, do you, did you feel when you were doing this that you were competing for control over their narrative? You know, Not because they were public figures, but because they were narrative abusers, if you will. <laughs> right. It, because they had so much invested, more my aunt than my uncle, I must say, in deciding how the story of our family should be told. The Mighty Franks right. was a phrase that my grandmother developed around the time she shed her names as she was coming across that Oregon to watch uh, Oregon to California border. She meant that they could now do everything. Once she had that job, once they were settled, once Hollywood was opening its magical doors, they could be mighty, in, not just there, but in business, in life, in the people they, they drew into their orbit. I, of course, intend it with far more irony. It's such a story of the American West. It also. is. And an and L- and L.A. story and a California mm-hmm. story, too. Let's, you know, I, of course, pay attention to these things later in life. But why did people come to California? Obviously, for opportunity and reinvention, but also for health. 
And my uncle was right. a, a su- suffered severe asthma as a child in, in the East, and the, the only cure that, that doctors had to suggest to him was that he be sent west, that he go live in the west. He had to be sent on his own at 10 years old to go live with what else? An aunt and uncle <laughs> for three years while his father finished uh, his rabbinical degree in the East. Yeah. That's quite a, it's, so there's health, there's opportunity, there's reinvention. His father seemed quite wonderful. He, I did not know him, but I, everyone has always, speaking of narrative control, but I think also just speaking truthfully, said he was probably the most amazing human being in the entire hmm. family. A very deeply charismatic, knowing, intelligent, embracing human being. So with, with the benefit of, of years of, of growth and years to look back on this, I'm going to ask you to play amateur psychologist a little bit because I'm sure you've spent a lot of your time doing it. Hmm. But you don't really go into it that much in the book to try to figure what makes your aunt tick and why she would – I mean, obviously very needy, obviously a little vindictive, but what – was it her – I'm just babbling now, so maybe you should take over. It's not an easy question to answer. And, you know, I did not see the purpose of this book to be either diagnostic or um, I'm trying to think what the what is the right summarizing word for how someone became to be who they came to be. Well, and I think you made the right choice because I think the book's about you, not her. Exactly. Uh, it is about me in relationship to her mm-hmm. or her in relationship to me and the wider family. I cannot explain to you how my aunt came to be who she came to be. That is still a uh, question ahead for me and uh, I, I have it in mind I think to go back a generation now because I do believe that, that the, her development as a psyche is lodged in her experience in her own nuclear family mm-hmm. with a very dominating mother who used to say and there are clues all through my book actually that you could constitute your own hypothesis her mother used to say we're beyond best friends we're not mother and daughter we're closer than that friends. freaked me out we yeah. tell each other our secrets my aunt knew that my grandmother was having a love affair with, as it happened the rabbi of her synagogue when she my aunt was 12 years old and it had been spun and it had been already been spun it was the subject of an unpublished novel that she wrote in her 20s. Um, it would became a piece of family lore that this was a, a fantastic way to find happiness and love in life. Whereas my grandmother, in her own diary, said, I've never been truly loved. I've never been truly happy. Right there, that discrepancy says so much. And so uh, my next project, or one of them, which I'm calling Before They Were Mighty, my own sense of irony, Mm. is to go back and look at the previous generation. And I have as a point of departure my grandmother's diaries. I have letters. I have a mountain of interesting primary source material. But I think that I'm going to also go down an imagined path. And I'm going to constitute those years in the early part of the century in my grandmother's early life and then in her life as a mother to a young family when she did do things distinctly out of the norm. And I'm going to write them as I would write fiction, but very much base them on what I know to be fact. Let's talk a little bit about doing things out of the norm. Maybe the clearest message and earliest message that your aunt gave you was, I wrote, fitting in is death. Was that a gift or a curse? Mixed, I would say. I think it was mostly a curse in, in the fact that, as you, as you mentioned earlier, I was often uh, taunted and beaten up in the schoolyard for years and years. Not a happy situation. 
it was a gift in that I don't care so much anymore mm-hmm. about all kinds of things. You know, partly though, it's not because my aunt said that; it's because I survived my aunt saying that. Because I've lived this family life, I just don't care about certain kinds of conventional stances and opinions and behaviors. And I've tried to impart some of that to my daughter. You know, you you come of age; she's now turning twelve. That is a period of great conformity among children, and I. We live in in New York City in Greenwich Village, and she goes to a school where, you know, there's a certain way of doing things simply because that's how it is in a certain class in this in a certain certain cities in this culture, and we just don't do things that way. And I'm, that's a constant refrain: why we didn't have Snapchat, why we didn't, why we don't engage in all kinds of things. Uh, she'll probably not be so happy with me later on, but. I don't do it with my aunt's dogmatism. I just allow her to know that there are different ways to be. Uh, That was my next question. Having learned what you learned growing up, the way you grew up, how does that impact the way you deliver the message as a parent? Well, I definitely don't deliver it with as much uh, dogmatism dogmatism (laughs) as my aunt did. And I also have a very independent-minded, articulate quick-witted child who was very ready to challenge me on any of the things that I put forward. So, And I think we basically are in agreement at home. And she's, she's one of the great things, one of the few great things of having had a complicated childhood like this, a burdened childhood like this, and quite honestly enough therapy to dig yourself up out of it and having written it, so having rendered something outside of the experience, is that you don't really need to reenact it at home. You know, you become smart enough, I hope, I've become smart enough to be very careful about how I parent. I would think you'd go out of your way not to reenact it at home. Most certainly. Most certainly. I'm sure I make all kinds of mistakes, but they're not these mistakes. I mean, there is the reaction to it the other way, too, which is that you live in an island off the coast of America in a small family. (laughs) Yes, that's true. (laughs) Most certainly. But, you know, I live away, but I'm back a lot. You know, it's, I've never quite uh, broken those ties. I'm still tethered, but not the way I was. Right. You're not living on top of your siblings. I most certainly am not. Is it hard not to live in LA for you? It's mixed. I feel at home when I'm there and there are things I miss about it. But I'm also very much at home in New York and in Italy and other places that I spend a good deal of time. Now, I really like the Italy anger. We were talking mm-hmm. about it before because Bridget said, why Italy? And mm-hmm. I said, well, that was his place. Your aunt had no opinions, right? Exactly. But why now? I mean, has there been some continuity between your past as a student in Italy and now? Yes. I mean, I started going just after college and uh, I've gone consistently with, with interesting breaks that I'm still trying to puzzle out uh, for the, ever since. I lived in Florence for a year. I've lived in Rome for a year. And I'm there every summer for a chunk of the summer and at other times during the year. And I have a whole – I think it's a chance to become someone a little bit different in a different language, in a different mm-hmm. culture. No one knows or has any residual connection to the people I come from. I'm, I'm building it out of me, out of my own experience. Now my experience with my wife, my experience with my child. And we have a world of people and – we love it, you know, and I work well there and I find all kinds of great ideas for sh- fiction there, short fiction, which I write because I'm more open there. I just don't, ca- again, not caring. Yeah. But so it, freeing. And my follow-up is, you know, how long did it take you to get to the point where you felt you could make decisions without either being second-guessed, being slammed, or feeling like you're just making the decision to show people you can make a decision? Mm. 
yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> it's still, what day is this? Uh, exactly. <laughs> no. I, a long time. I couldn't tell you quite when, but having success as a writer, even in a smaller way than the Mighty Franks so far, anyway, has been very helpful because it's my own thing, my own turf, my own affirmation. And how is your aunt now? She's 100 years old. She's not. The Wikipedia has that wrong. Oh, come on, Wikipedia. I tell you. She's I count 90, on them. She's 94. And as I've said, I'm not answering questions ah. about living people after the scope of the book. But you can stay tuned for the oh. sequel that follows the then. prequel. Ah, now it all ends Which uh, my also ironic title is The Mighty Have Fallen. The Mighty Have Fallen. I will, just to bring it back a little bit to Italy... You know, I, I had asked you this question last night that in some ways you had been primed to be a visual artist and you made what seemed narratively at least a sort of sudden break to being a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, but you lived in Florence and you live in Italy now. Is there a part of you that still feels a connection to being oh, a visual artist? Deeply. I'd still draw mm-hmm. and I make things when I can. I make some collages. I'm not the only writer to do that. Janet Malcolm does. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, there are others out there. Um, it, it, right now, it's really more than anything a matter of time because I'm writing right. so much uh, that it, it's using what I have. But I'm not done. I'm not I'm by, by no means no by no means done making visual art. That's right fantastic. Then. I love that. We're starting to run out of time, but I did want to sort of shoehorn in. Uh, aside from this work and the works that you mentioned, some of the things you're doing as a writer now. Now. And to get an idea of, of just a real quick recap of how your career has gone, um, you were the book editor of the... No, I was a contributing, contributing writer, writer to the Los Angeles Times Book Review where I reviewed books for seven, between seven and nine years. I, I've sort of blocked out the amount of time because so much went into it. I've written short fiction for years. Okay. Uh, I, As a journalist, I've written... Uh, I've done quite a bit of travel writing, and I write about Italy and the Jews in Italy. I've been doing pieces recently for Tablet Magazine, the Boston Review. Um, this is another area of deep interest of mine. In fact, I'm working on uh, another book that is about uh, one of the survivors of the island of the deportation from the island of Rhodes, which was an Italian uh, possession won in the Italo-Turkish War of 1912. It's a very little known story of the of the war years, uh, how at the very last minute in the summer of 1944, when from Rome south, the country had been liberated, uh, a telegram came and said, we will take the Jews from Rhodes, who were geographically at the farthest distance from Auschwitz of any population. And this entire group of 1,750 Jews who'd lived on the island at first since the ancient world, but of course more recently since the expulsion from Spain, was rounded up except for one person and taken away. And I've been taking the oral history of a most remarkable woman named Stella Levy that is going to be the core of a very, I hope, interesting book as I tell her story as much before as during the war. It's a story about place and memory. It's uh, it's a story about studying your own life as she's done. 
and as I like to think in a certain way, I have. I was just going to say, I, I can see the parallels and the themes that you're interested in. She also replaces, in a sense, psychologically for me, as I've, between quotation marks, killed off some of my family, if you will, <laughs> or by natural attrition lost them. I'm sort of this remarkable human being with whom I don't have the kind of uh, psychologically tangled history that I have with the people in my own family has appeared in my world and... Uh, it's something special is going on. You mentioned uh, Andre Asman last night, and is it Out of Egypt? That's the name of the yes, book? Yes, as it's a book that was such very such a fantastic book. Um, I mean, I would love to read your book. I, that's a, 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 you know, that, to read about that culture in Egypt was was amazing. And, and there are so many stories out there. I have, yeah. you know, I have another novel underway that is set during Italy in, in the war period. This is a, a, a very interesting juxtaposition for me, the outsider population in a culture that I've come to know and love very well that has lots of blind spots to its own culpability and responsibility during that period. It's a, feel, a very rich field you know, to be mined and to be thought about and to be reflected on. Fantastic. And I've been writing lots of short stories, too. That was my treat to myself when I finished The Mighty Franks. <laughs> I can now imagine again. You know, I, I, living back imaginatively is fine and well, but pure imagination is sometimes just what the doctor ordered. And Willy Wonka. And you're in the middle of it right now. So what is ahead for you in the next, coming, in the next couple of months? Well, thank you for asking. I'm, uh, I'll be at Barnes & Noble at The Grove in the, at the farmer's market in Los Angeles on June 20th for another conversation. I'll be then appearing in Boston uh, at Brookline Booksmith on the 22nd of June and in Washington, D.C. at Politics and Prose on the 24th of June. All of this you can find on my website, michaelfrank.com. After that, I'm going to have a bit of a break, I think, until later in the summer when I'll be in Denver and I'll be at the Texas Book Festival. And who knows what's ahead? And this is, we'll be posting on the 20th, so all of those dates for listeners are all in play. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, you won't be sorry. Yeah. Thank you for sharing your story with us on the Grotto Pod. Uh, your website is? MichaelFrank.com. MichaelFrank.com. Uh, BQ, how can they get a hold of you if they want to read you about you? Author.com or at BQinterest, everywhere else. I am at that Larry Rosen, and of course, you can listen to my other podcast, Is It Good for the Jews, at isitgoodforthejews.com. Grotto Pod, you can find us at the Grotto Pod or grottopod.com. Who uh, produces this here uh, stereo podcast there, BQ? Larry, I'm glad you asked. Laurieanne Doyle, Beth Weingarner, and Lee Kravitz are our fabulous producers. And the music, of course, is by Sugartown. You can find them on Facebook at Sugartown, California. It's 120 degrees here in the Grotto Pod. That's how you know it's time to wrap it up. BQ, take us home. Friends, read, write, and just keep working. 